Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you politics without the boring bits. You can listen live to my Times radio show weekdays from 10 on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, obviously it's a Wednesday, so the big-ish political event of the day. Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer for PMQ's Unpacked. Lara Spirit joins us as well as Tim Shipman, mainly because Tim was stuck in traffic. So both of them helped me pause the action live in the House of Commons. Will the COVID inquiry come up or will Keir Starmer just ask questions about migration, start off quite well and then do some of the worst jokes we've ever heard in the House of Commons? Find out. That's coming up in just a moment. Before that, the trial of Boris Johnson is underway. Can I just say how glad I am to be at this uh, inquiry and uh, how sorry I am for the the pain and the loss and the suffering uh, that I understand the feelings of, the, of these victims and their families and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering of those victims. The former Prime Minister in the dock at the Covid inquiry that he himself set up looking for lessons to be learned for any future similar crises but for lots of people a moment of high drama as the man who locked us down is forced to answer for his decisions for the team around him and whether or not things might have panned out differently. Watching along with me was Callum McDonald from Times Radio, of course. And Callum, let's before we get into some of the clips, just give me a sense of Boris Johnson's demeanour. We were told in advance that he'd spent hours rehearsing for this with his barristers, hundreds of pages of documents that he'd been through. What's been his overall demeanour in tone, Boris Johnson in the dock? Demeanour, I think, is relatively subdued. There have perhaps been a few moments where it's got a little bit spiky between him and Hugo Keith, but I would argue not as spiky as perhaps it has been with other uh, witnesses to the COVID inquiry. I think the other thing about Boris Johnson's demeanour is that while he is remaining calm, he is also slightly off the boil when it comes to some specific details and important dates. And I'm, I, th- I think it, I'm only really picking up on that because I'm contrasting it to Matt Hancock and Chris Whissey, who are the other two that I've watched in detail at this at the inquiry, and they were all over it, to, to put it bluntly. They, they knew the dates, they knew the points they wanted to land, and I'm just not sure Boris Johnson, beyond that apology, has really been able to grasp 
the detail of, of what is being asked of him. Now, it's worth saying, you know, he has been defending his government's performance, the way it operated, the atmosphere in which it was operating, and the atmosphere created by him and those around him. Um, he's been defending that, saying, you know, it was a good thing to have this debate. Um, and in fact, there was a really interesting part of that sort of cultural discussion where he said um, that actually the, the, the sort of greatest vice would have been the worst vice in his view would have been, this is a quote, to have an operation where everybody was so deferential and so reluctant to make waves that they never expressed their opinion, they never challenged and they never doubted. It was much more important to have a group of people who were willing to doubt themselves and doubt each other. And I think actually that's quite helpful because that is really at the core of the evidence that Boris Johnson has been given today in that it speaks to his defence of his time as Prime Minister during the pandemic. Well, let's remind us then of, uh, of how things got underway. Boris Johnson uh, opening with his apology. Let's take a listen. What primary mistakes, Mr Johnson, are you referring to in paragraph 10 when you say there was terrible suffering, but in relation to which, where we failed, I apologise again. For what are you apologising in that statement? Well, I, I, I think just to, to go back to your, your, your main point, which is that so many people suffered, so many people lost their lives. Inevitably, in the course of trying to handle a very, very difficult pandemic in which we had to balance appalling harms on either side of the, of the decision, uh, we may have, have made mistakes. We may have made mistakes. Mm. And what Hugo Keith Casey has been trying to do over the last three, two and a bit hours is, is pin, pin down what they were. Clearly, lots of questions about the team around Boris Johnson. You're making this point, and you read out some of the quotes from him. He has, he's got this line that, that, but, that Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair's governments mm. wouldn't have survived the, the scrutiny of having their WhatsApps. Margaret Thatcher on WhatsApp is quite a, <laughs> a thought. Quite a thing. Just replying <laughs> no, no, no to everything. Um, but him saying that it was all part of the challenge. You know, he's, he's really tried to downplay the psychodrama that, that it was being uh, portrayed by Dominic Cummings as his chief advisor, mm. some of the civil servants, uh, Lord Sedwell, uh, Helen McNamara was the deputy uh, cabinet secretary, Matt Hancock when he was giving evidence. They portrayed, you know, a sense of chaos. You yeah. know, Lee Kane, former director of communications, saying that this was not the crisis which best suited his skill set. Actually, Boris Johnson really downplaying that, saying he didn't know about the toxic culture. He's since apologised, he said, to one uh, person who'd been uh, a victim of it. Um, and trying to present it as sort of business as normal. What we've seen in the last three quarters of an hour or so, or an hour or so, uh, Callum, is a focus on that early part of 2020. To what extent... Uh, was he ignoring what was going on? Yeah. To what extent did he know that COVID was was bubbling up? Mm. And obviously, things bubble up all all the time mm. in government. The whole point of having a cabinet and having a a government is that ministers, you know, keep across things, and it ends up on the prime minister's desk. The question is, should it have ended up on the prime minister's desk sooner? Yeah. So I'm going to start around Cobra because I think this highlights a, a large part of the point here. Um, Hugo Keith was conveying the information that COBRA was convened and chaired by Matt Hancock, which is perfectly right and permissible, that's fine, five times, 24th of January, 29th of January, 5th, 18th and 26th of Feb. And he was basically making the point that the health secretary felt the need to convene on this single issue. 
and the prime minister was not there. And so that is the that was the kind of launching off point for how then did the government machine sort of click into action? When did that happen? And indeed, was it too slow? Uh, there's been a, a sort of bit of evidence um, uh, in the last hour or so in terms of how that ramped up. Um, so there was a text message exchange in a group chat, the Number 10 Action Group, which did include Boris Johnson. On the 6th of February, Dominic Cummings wrote, Need briefing on corona tomorrow. Chief scientist told me it's probably out of control now and will sweep the world. Will be a major communications exercise. Uh, now, there was an interesting sort of exchange about why there was a focus on communication um, when it was understood that the virus was out of control even at that point. But Boris Johnson said, When you read that an Asiatic pandemic is about to swave, sweep, excuse me, sweep the world, you think you've heard it before. That was the problem. He said that at that stage, the scientific community in Whitehall was not telling him, quote, this was something that was going to require urgent and immediate action. There's a really interesting part of this where he basically says that they didn't necessarily believe the data that they mm. were seeing. Um, quote, if we'd actually stopped to think about the mathematical implications of some of the forecasts being made and we'd believed them, we might have operated differently. And one of the things we've heard in previous uh, evidence, particularly from Patrick Vallance, the former chief scientific advisor, is that he repeatedly tried to explain to Boris Johnson how exponential growth worked, mm. and he just really couldn't get his head around it. Well, uh, talking about why he didn't take more action in January and February 2020, uh, Boris Johnson has admitted that he should have twigged sooner. My memory now is that I think the, I, the scenes from Italy really rattled me. And um, it was, I thought, I, and I remember seeing a, a note somewhere saying that eight, you know, the fatality rate in Italy was 8%. Uh, because they had an elderly population, I thought, "Well, my God, we've got an elderly population. This is this is appalling, and this can't be. This can't." And I thought, "This my instinct was this cannot possibly be be right." You know, this 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 number, um, and um, I mean, you know, just so you know, I, I I look at all this stuff in which we seem so oblivious with that with with horror now. I mean, we 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 should have we should have have twigged. We should collectively have twigged. Uh, much sooner. I should have twigged. So that was Boris Johnson admitting that he maybe should have, in his words, twigged sooner. That all was not well in the dealing with coronavirus, that delegating, essentially leaving it to Matt Hancock may have been a mistake. There's been quite a lot of focus, actually, from Hugo Keith Casey on the structures around Boris Johnson and the extent to which he was getting information from the scientists. There was a, a suggestion that he actually only read a handful of minutes from the SAGE Committee, Scientific Advisory Group. Uh, this is, Boris Johnson said that actually maybe he should have been more across the discussions. Maybe he should have listened to, in his words, the unpasteurised discussions from them. But he was also questioned about the extent to which he relied on political advisers like Dominic Cummings. It's apparent that on top of the formal advisory structures the meetings with the CMO and the GCSA, the meetings with the Cabinet Secretary, the meetings with your ministers. You had a profusion of meetings with your chief advisor, Mr Cummings, with your uh, Cabinet Secretary, with your, permanent, uh, with your principal private secretary and so on. There were a huge number of rolling meetings with your innermost group of advisers. And I want to know to what extent, therefore, you came to rely upon them in the ultimate decision-making process. I, of course, relied on the advice I was 
given, but the way it works is advisers advise and ministers decide. And that was what happened. And of course, one of the things we've seen a lot in this COVID inquiry so far is the focus on WhatsApps and the content of them. Boris Johnson forced to explain why lots of his WhatsApps have gone missing. He didn't seem to really understand the concept of, of a factory reset. You remember it's because his mobile number appeared online and then he had to get a new phone and he said he couldn't find his old WhatsApps. Although actually we've seen lots of the messages anyway because the likes of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane and Mark Sedwell and Simon Case and so on have submitted their evidence. But in terms of the content of the WhatsApps, uh, quite sweary, misogynistic, bullying, aggressive messages flying around between people running the country in the middle of the pandemic, Boris Johnson defended some of that material, but apologised for some of the language. Here he is again answering questions from Hugo Keith. It needs to be stated absolutely plainly that the inquiry has absolutely no interest in the in the salaciousness or the the nature of Mr Cummings's linguistic style or the whatsapps but it does have an interest of course in whether or not his communications revealed an abusive and misogynistic impact the whatsapps and the texts shed a direct light on the competence of the government how well or not the government machinery operated, what you all thought about each other, and what some of you thought privately about the decisions that were being taken. <clears throat> we're going to look in detail at them later, but it's fair to say that in the round that material paints yes. a appalling picture, not all the time, but right. at times of incompetence and disarray. Can I comment on that? I, I, I think Please. that um, the two things need to be separated out there. Um, I think it is certainly true that this inquiry has, and, and I'm, I'm glad of it, I think has dredged up a phenomenal quantity of the type of material that would never have been available to any previous inquiry into doings in number 10 because it's, it's WhatsApp communications of a kind that would not have been possible. And that's a that's a good thing because you can get a, a texture of the a feeling for the for the relationships and the uh, and the human beings. I would make a, a couple of points. First of all, uh, a lot of the the language, the style that you refer to, is completely unknown to me, uh, or indeed to anybody else not on the on that group. Uh, I've apologised to one particular person who suffered uh, abuse in that. Uh, in one of those publicised uh, WhatsApp exchanges. Um, but I would make a distinction between the type of language used and the decision-making processes of the government and what we got done. And I would submit that any powerful and effective government has, and I think of the, the Thatcher government or the Blair government, uh, has a lot of uh, challenging and competing characters uh, whose views about each other uh, might not be fit uh, to print, uh, but to get an awful lot done. And that's what we did. It's really interesting that. And it came up again and again. Boris Johnson trying to insist that much of what was going on was merely challenge from a bunch of people at the top of government, at the top of their game, merely applying the creative challenge that you need in a team. It actually, the mind boggles the idea of Margaret Thatcher on a WhatsApp group. 
But finally, one thing that Boris Johnson did concede, and this has been a criticism right from the start, was it was a very male team at the top of government making these decisions about schools closing, about childcare, about what was going to happen to elderly relatives. Lots of people have pointed out that in British society, lots of those decisions, lots of those responsibilities fall on women. And yet very rarely were there any women in the room making these decisions. And Boris Johnson conceded that that was a mistake, that his team was too male-dominated. Were you aware that there were individuals, civil servants and advisors who were not prepared to work in your administration because of the atmosphere and the working relationships which were in play? First of all, no. Uh, second, I was not aware of that. Uh, se- secondly, um, I didn't see any sign of that. I, I saw... Uh, brilliantly talented people. Uh, when we wanted, when we advertised for a post, when we wanted to recruit for a, a position in my private office, we had, as far as I could see, no difficulty getting wonderful people to to step forward. I think, if I might make one, I think one self criticism or another self criticism. I think that the the gender balance of my team should have been better. And if, to, to your earlier question, looking back at it, um, when I was running London, it was great and it was 50-50 and it was a very harmonious team. I think sometimes during the pandemic, too many meetings were too, too male-dominated, if I'm absolutely honest with you. So we are, for lots of people, that will be a major concession to Boris Johnson. But clearly lots of people have already made their minds up as we saw at the very beginning of his evidence when it was interrupted by a group of protesters saying that the dead could not hear his apologies. Rolling coverage of Boris Johnson's appearance at the COVID inquiry live on Times Radio and, of course, online at thetimes.co.uk. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Here we are again then, and, well, it's all gone wrong. Uh, Lindsay Hoyle there in the jingle. He's not going to be joining us for PMQs because he's got COVID. Tim Shipman there in the jingle. He's not going to be joining us because he's stuck in traffic, uh, thanks to uh, the train strike. He got into a cab. If only there was some way that uh, someone who works for a national news organisation could have been aware that there's a train strike happening. But it doesn't matter. None of that matters. Because uh, we've got... Well, not, not, not even not even an understudy. An upgrade. We've had an upgrade. Red box editor Lara Spirit is here. Lara, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. So, so you're not doing the best of the rest. You're doing the best of the best. The best of the best. Yeah. So you don't like the best of the rest. I oh, know I like the best of the rest, but it's nice to have you here doing the. You know, you know, last week it was a job of two men, Giles Cohen and Tim Shipman, but you're going to do it all yourself. <laughs> Uh, which I think is marvellous. Um, we've obviously been watching Boris Johnson giving evidence of the COVID inquiry today. What's, what do you think Keir Starmer will do? Does I, he lean into it, think it was the only story in town, or does he go on something else? I don't think he'll go for um, the COVID inquiry today in the main thrust of his questions to Rishi uh, Sunak. I know that um, some of Starmer's advisers have been under some pressure uh, to go on this question of the COVID inquiry for quite some time. Uh, they are reluctant to do so. Uh, I think it's very likely they go on migration and particularly on Rwanda today. This is something that, of course, uh, they fought over just last week. Uh, but I think this is something that Kira is feeling increasingly uh, confident on when it comes to these questions. And actually, I can imagine it being a relatively similar session to the one that we saw last week. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> the other thing that's happening uh, a bit later on, Swella Bravman, uh, former Home Secretary, of course, due to give evidence to... Uh, sorry, due to make a personal statement... Everyone's giving evidence. Due to make personal a personal statement. statement like to, when you apply for your uh, universities of choice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a team player. Uh, I work well as part of a team <laughs> or my own, depending on the situation. I like reading and socialising. Uh, she did make a personal statement to the Commons. Uh, uh, she saw that normally you would make this when you resigned from the uh, Cabinet a bit sooner, but she instead fired off that extraordinary letter, the non-resignation letter. I know, you were getting a bit upset about well, this because people a resignation keep letter, calling it a resignation she was letter. Fired. So she's now going to make a non-resignation statement. A non-resignation statement, uh, and it's definitely, I think, not going to be as powerful as it would have been in circumstances where she had kept uh, a vow of silence up until this point. But I actually think her public interventions since being sacked have been too numerous to count. I don't know if you can imagine how many there are, but we've had lists of uh, plans and interviews and a number of posts on Twitter about what she would be doing differently and why uh, her plans and recommendations weren't heeded uh, by Rishi Sunak. Of course, she stood up just last week at that Spectator uh, dinner that I was watching uh, and blamed the Prime Minister specifically and explicitly for, uh, in her view, failing to deliver on net migration pledges. So now we've actually had the announcement uh, on Monday. You might have forgotten it because we've been speaking about basically, you know, <laughs> during the COVID inquiry since. Uh, but I think her response on that uh, will 
be interesting to hear, even despite uh, her many comments on this subject and others since leaving. So we've got uh, Deputy Speaker Eleanor Lang in the chair today. Uh, we're interested to see if she she uh, pops up as often as uh, um, uh, Lindsay Hoyle likes to uh, in the House of Commons. Um, uh, Rishi Sinak and uh, Keir Starmer both there. So we're, we're, we've got Lars Spirit pausing the action. Is this the first time you've done this? Yeah, I think so. Oh, that's exciting, isn't it? Um, <laughs> there's a poll running actually on the YouTube channel if you are watching along. Will Starmer mention the COVID inquiry? Lara's, Lara's voting no. Well, I'm not voting that he won't mention it, but I think he would be much more likely to go on migration and Rwanda uh, as a kind of main theme. Uh, Matt says hello from a cold Manchester. G Moles says hello from cold West London. Terry says, Matt, this is like GB News. <laughs> They were marginally more professional than that. Uh, <laughs> and over from the sunny but cold south coast. Everyone's cold today. It's almost like it's winter. Uh, that's Tom. Greetings from sunny West Ealing. Andy's in Taunton. Nice to see Lara promoted to the big guns. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to establish the idea that Lara's not one of the big guns normally. Uh, it's a very important job doing the best of the West. Good to have Lara on. She's a legend, says James. Oh, thank you, James. Uh, and prettier than Tip. Well, thank you for that, Ross. We don't know that sort of business. Uh, good afternoon from a cold and sunny Liverpool. <coughs> Excuse me. Chris says, Swella getting lots of PR advice on someone to keep her front of mind rather than vanishing into the back benches. I would just say, if that was the case, I don't know if I'd make my personal statement today in the middle of... Uh... It is a particularly busy day to try and have an impact, but she hasn't really been that effective so far in being able to do it, so it's not massively surprising that she hasn't chosen to do it at a kind of more impactful time, is it? And um, what, are you, what are you actually expecting for, in terms of the, uh, um, the, the what's happening with Rwanda? So we're not actually expecting anything from the government today, but it might come tomorrow? Yes, so uh, Downing Street are hoping to yes, right. uh, publish the emergency legislation by the end of uh, Thursday, but I think there are plenty of caveats there about Rishi Sunak uh, wanting to get it right, as we often hear from Number 10, that he'll take his time if it's not ready. Uh, he's under a lot of pressure, I think, from the new Conservatives and those on the right of the party who are still holding out some slim hope uh, that he might well choose the full fat option, despite you know what we read in the Times this morning about him having made up his mind that he won't. Uh, now, um, uh, well, not that you've noticed, they were slightly padding. Uh, for some reason, at the beginning of PMQs today, we, they've had, uh, normally we have one uh, backbench question. Uh, we've had Michael Fabricant, Sarah Champion and Caroline Ansel of all asked questions so far, uh, which means uh, we're now getting ready for Keir Starmer to, uh, uh, to get up and make uh, uh, his uh, first question. Angela Rayner and Rachel Reeves sitting either side of him. Uh, let's go live to the House of Commons then. This is Keir Starmer's first question. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker, and it's very good to see you in your place, and we wish the Speaker a speedy recovery. Uh, this week we lost two giants of the Labour family, and I thank the Prime Minister for his comments. Alistair Darling was a man of unassuming intelligence, warmth and kindness. He brought a calm expertise and, in private, a cutting wit, and devoted his love of his family was ever-present. Our thoughts are with Maggie, his wife, Callum, Anna, who he loved so dearly. Glenis Kinnock was a passionate campaigner for social justice who changed lives home and abroad. She was a loving and supportive partner and mother, and her death is a huge loss to all of us. We are thinking of Neil, of Stephen, Rachel, and of all the family. Can I also echo the Prime Minister's comments in relation to Lord Douglas Hamilton. And in relation to the Hillsborough families, they deserve 
justice. In a previous capacity, I worked with the families. They waited a very, very long time for the findings, thanks to people in this House, um, and they've waited a long time for this response, but I'm glad it is now coming. Madam Deputy Speaker, if the purpose of the Rwanda gimmick was to solve a political headache of the Tories' own making, to get people out of the country who they simply couldn't deal with, then it's been a resounding success. After all, they've managed to send three Home Secretaries there, an achievement for which the whole country can be grateful. So, apart from members of his own Cabinet, how many people has the Prime Minister sent to Rwanda? Well, Madam Deputy Speaker, as I've been clear before, we will do everything it takes. I mean, it's not a bad Speaker, joke, We will do everything it takes to get this scheme working so that we can indeed stop the boats. And that's why this week we have signed a new legally binding treaty with Rwanda, which together with new legislation will address all the concerns that have been raised, because everyone should be in no doubt about our absolute commitment to stop the boats and get flights off. Because, Madam Deputy Speaker, and this is the crucial point that the Honourable Gentleman doesn't understand, deterrence is critical. Even the National Crime Agency have said that you need an effective removals and deterrence agreement if you truly want to break the cycle of tragedy that we see. But what we heard this morning from his own ministers was that was that they would scrap the scheme even when it is operational and working. As again, once again, Mr Speaker, once again, instead of being on the side of the British people, he finds himself on the side of the people smugglers. Well, just uh, picking up on where he ended off, that's quite ballsy, isn't it? On the side of the people smugglers, which is a, a sort of a line of attack I think they've used previously, but we haven't heard for a while. But you're right, Lara, that he decided to go on Rwanda and not on... Uh, and not on the COVID. Thank device. you. I take great pride anyway, in that. Um, but yeah, so I think that was. Whoa, whoa, whoa! <laughs> Breaking news. Good afternoon. Tim Shipman's here. Thanks for popping in. Well, take you your know. coat off. Otherwise, you won't for the benefit later. <laughs> Thank you, mother. Oh dear, you've broken your headphones now. Oh, oh dear. I've broken myself. Hello, Lara Spirit. While he gathers how himself. You've been so missed. <laughs> no, I, mean, that's, I mean, that completely No, he hasn't. We've been coping perfectly well without him. Um, uh, so obviously Keir Starmer kicked off with, with you know, tributes to Alistair Darling and to uh, Glenis Killick, who, um two big Labour names who've uh, died in the last week he, he did, but then he went on to the Rwanda what he called the Rwanda gimmick had a dig at James Cleverley who is on the front bench in one of his rare, rare trips uh, back to London he said, uh, but he asked him how many people have you sent to Rwanda and then uh, well obviously Rishi Sunak didn't answer that I suspect Keir Starmer might answer that in a moment um, uh Rishi Sunak mounting a strong defence of what they're doing and then accusing Keir Starmer of being on the side of the people smugglers. Yeah, and I don't think that there's anything that Rishi Sunak could have done other than that, really, uh, given they are in the in the midst of this. Of course, I mean, it's a classic PMQ's answer from Rishi Sunak, which finishes with a, from Rishi Sunak, which finishes with, with a Keir Starmer is on the side of X, uh, in this case, the people smugglers. Um, but I think it's, I mean, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting line for them to go on. It shows just how confident they are, given this was the exact same topic that Labour went on just last week. They're going on this, obviously, again, because it is at the top 
top of the news agenda. We had the treaty uh, yesterday, but we are in this weird and sensitive moment for Tory MPs where they are waiting uh, for the exact and final shape of the emergency legislation. We know it's probably going to disappoint the right of the party, but some of them are still holding out uh, a tiny bit of optimism about that not being the case. So I think a particular moment of vulnerability for Rishi Sunak in forcing him to defend this policy when some of the key points, especially over uh, the European Convention of Human Rights, remain, I think, uh, currently undecided. Well, if, if undecided, or if have they have been decided, they remain currently at least un- a bit unclear to some Tory MPs. Well, let's go while uh, Tim just gathers himself. Let's go back to the House of Commons then. Uh, this is question number two from Keir Starmer. Madam Deputy Speaker, when they first announced this gimmick, they claimed Rwanda would settle tens of thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people. Then the Deputy Former Prime Minister quickly whittled it down to mere hundreds. Then the Court of Appeal in June made clear there's housing for just 100. The current number of people sent there remains stubbornly consistent. Zero. Yeah. At, the same, at the same time, at the same time, Madam Deputy, Article 19 of the treaty says the parties shall make arrangements for the United Kingdom to resettle a portion of Rwanda's most vulnerable refugees in the United Kingdom. So, how many refugees from Rwanda will be coming here to the UK under the treaty? Yeah. Mr. Speaker, what? Madam Deputy Speaker, sorry. Madam- Order! Prime Minister. It addresses all the concerns of the Supreme Court. But I, it's, it's a point of pride, Madam Deputy Speaker, that we are a compassionate country that does welcome people from around the world. But, but let's just, let me just get the Honourable Gentleman up to speed on what we are doing. Reduce the number of illegal arrivals from Albania by 90%. Increase the number of illegal working raids by 50%. Because of all the action, we've taken the number of small boat arrivals down by a third, Madam Deputy Speaker. But what is the Honourable Gentleman's plan? Because it comes down to he just simply doesn't have a plan to address this problem. On a, but no, no, I'm probably being unfair because he does have a plan. It's to cook up a deal with the EU that would see us accept 100,000 illegal migrants. Right. Um, so, uh, Keir Starmer there clearly tried to needle Tory MPs, not entirely happy with every bit of the plan that Rishi Sunak has, has agreed to, which includes this, this bit uh, which involves some refugees coming from Rwanda to the UK, which we might actually end up with a net increase in the number of people. I mean, this is the thing with this plan, um, and I'm frankly amazed that Starmer hasn't been a bit more over this for the previous weeks. We have known for some time that the number of people the Rwandans are going to take is at best in the low to mid-hundreds. Um, he's now saying that it's emerged in court that it was only 100. Um, And now he's, you know, um, uh, this is a good little bit of uh, studying of the treaty, um, working out that, you know, we might get more coming the other way. Um, And he's, you know, he's opening question... You know, it's quite a good joke about how many people have you actually sent yeah, to Rwanda, yeah. multiple home secretaries and nobody else. And now this sort of kicker that more people might come back. You know, Labour have had this argument about this is a pointless sort of plan and the Tory argument's always been it's about deterrence and there may be something in that. But 
it's not much of a deterrent. If it, but, but it might work as a deterrent while still not solving yeah. their political problem, which is that a lot of people don't like immigration at the levels it's at, and uh, they'd be no more keen on Rwandans coming here than they would on illegal immigrants from North Africa or Syria. And we've got a flavour as well there, Rishi Sunak Lara, that far from being a deterrent, it actually might be being a distraction from the successes they've had on other areas, like Albania, like the fact that the number of boats coming has actually gone down. Yeah, and to, and to reference that, I think, upsets some Tory MPs because they don't want to hear Rishi Sunak talking about the successes in these areas. All they want to hear is action on Rwanda. Uh, Rishi Sunak there saying that it's an important deterrent policy, which mm. I think is the response to uh, what Tim is saying about the uh, the numbers there. But of course, that is, I think, has been questioned by quite a few people too. I think the communications on this is really interesting. If you stripped out Rwanda, you could have actually had a, quite a few good weeks for the government. I mean, the net migration measures, which were more hardline than people were expecting, that a number of Tory MPs on the right liked, have been completely washed away by this. We had good education news potentially yesterday. That's also been washed away. You And again, you had last week um, or the week before, you had the autumn statement and then following shortly after that, you had those net migration figures which yeah, they didn't yeah. have a package of measures to respond to when they knew they were going to have to. So yeah. it just seems that in the, on, the, on the few measures or moments where actually Rishi Sunak could be capitalising on things that they've been doing or successes that they've had. They have particularly the Rwanda policy, but not just Rwanda, drowning out uh, these issues because on migration it feels like yeah. they haven't been able to announce things as decisively And this is something the Tory right likes to do. They set up, this is what we must have, and on this it's all about Rwanda and boats. And their fury in number 10 with Suella Bravman was that she wouldn't make this argument that actually the numbers are coming down and yeah, we're doing yeah, all right yeah. on this because she wanted she to have the hardline viewpoint on Rwanda. They're also telling as well there, uh, Rishi Sunak clearly hasn't decided. Has Keir Starmer not got a plan or got a bad plan? And those two things can't well, be Well, he managed to say both, didn't both. he? Yeah, yeah. But let's, well, let's go back to the comments. There's a question three from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer! Migration's trebled on his watch and all he can do is make up numbers about the Labour Party. It's really pitiful. I'm not actually sure the Prime Minister can have read this thing. Article 4 says the scheme is capped at Rwanda's capacity. That's 100. Article 5 says Rwanda can turn them away if they want. Article 19 says we actually have to take refugees from Rwanda. How much did this fantastic deal cost us? Prime Minister! Madam Deputy Speaker, as the Home Secretary was crystal clear about, there is no incremental money. There is no incremental money that has been provided. This is about ensuring that the concerns of the Supreme Court have all been addressed in a legally binding treaty that will allow us to operationalise the scheme. But I'm glad he raised the topic of legal migration, which I agree is absolutely far sure too high, Madam Deputy Speaker. That's why this week we've outlined a plan bigger than any other government before to reduce the levels of legal migration by £300. It's an incredibly comprehensive plan. So if he cares so much about it, the simple question for him is... Does he support the plan? My plan's bigger than your plan, if you have a plan at all. Fine. Which you might not, but if you do, mine's bigger. You seem to have spotted some massive holes in my plan A, Uh, so why don't we talk about this other thing over here, which I'm slightly more across the detail of. That was probably a bit of like Keir Starmer Barrister Act, wasn't it? Article 4, Article 5, Article 19, how much does it cost? And the one thing you do know is that Rishi Sunak hasn't just read it, he probably wrote half of it and stared at it in his bedroom at three o'clock in the morning wondering whether it was the right thing to do. Um, Catching the PM out on detail is unusual. Um, 
but he doesn't seem to have answers on the specific it's possible, points it's that are being he raised. Know, it's possible he knows the detail, but hope that no one else would uh, uh, that may well it be the case. around it. Um, just because I'm slightly conscious of time, because we want to get back to Boris Johnson as well. Uh, let's go back. This is Keir Starmer. Question number four. Madam Deputy Speaker, he clearly hasn't read it. Annex A, Annex A says, on top, on top of the 140 million he's already showered on Rwanda, when we send people there under this treaty, we have to pay for their accommodation and their upkeep for five years. And that's not all. This morning, a government minister admitted that anyone we send to Rwanda who commits a crime can be returned to us. I'm beginning to see why the Home Secretary says Rwanda scheme has something to do with bats, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> what, does, what does he first think attracted Mr Kagame to hundreds of millions of pounds for nothing in return? Mr. Kagame, of course, the, uh, I've slightly lost the thread of the uh, question, Madam Deputy Speaker. But the, <laughs> the simple point is, the simple point, the, the simple point is, there's a simple question here. If you believe in stopping the boats, as we on this side of the house do, you need to have an effective deterrence and returns agreement. It's as simple as that. The honourable gentleman is not interested in stopping the boats, which is why he's not interested in the Rwanda plan. In fact, Madam Deputy Speaker, in fact, we know that they don't want to tackle this issue because even when, even when this government was trying to deport foreign national offenders out of this country, they opposed it. Multiple members of his shadow front bench all signed a letter to me to that effect. But I don't need to tell him that because he signed it too. I mean, they're both. It's slightly turned into that two Ronnie sketch where one of them's answering a different question to yes, the, uh, answering the question before. Yeah, yes, um, and before that, of course, we had a bit of Mrs. Merton and Paul Daniels gag slipping in there. <laughs> that was um, nice for well, the for the comedy. Are you familiar with Mrs. Merton, Lara? No, it's not. Yeah, see, it's a. I thought there might be a generational issue <laughs> around that particular gag. Mrs. Merton was uh, Caroline Hearn playing a an old woman who had a chat show. And she asked Debbie McGee, what was it about the millionaire that first attracted her to the millionaire Paul Daniels? Okay. So that was where... um... (laughs) What Sunak seems to be arguing here, if he was sort of bluntly just telling the truth, is this might not do anything to stop legal migration. It might increase the numbers. It might cost us a lot of money. But it still acts as a deterrent to illegal immigration. Mm. And as a consequence, it is worth having, regardless of what it costs or whether it puts the numbers up down um that would appear to be his honest answer through all this um i mean there's no evidence that the given that they've been banging on about this for what 18 months two years there's there's no evidence of it having that determined well effect. it's not in place yet matthew their argument would be that well of course everyone wants to rush to get in under the oh, wire before it's in place the other thing is and i've said this before and i'll bang on about it again uh labor have committed to scrapping it even if flights have taken off so, given that they've only got spaces for 100, pe- 100 people, it's going to be months before any flight takes off. There's a general election happening next year. If you are so desperate that you've travelled across Europe and got into a boat to cross the Channel, which, frankly, most people wouldn't do, um, Keir Starmer said he's going to cancel it. Yes. I mean, this is... Um, it's still worth a go coming, isn't there's it? A, there's a thing in films, the Maltese Falcon was one of them, they call it a MacGuffin. It's the sort of thing that everyone focuses on, but is ultimately sort of doesn't mean anything and is completely pointless and 
I think the Rwanda policy is becoming the MacGuffin of this government. Good point, though. We used to call them, yeah, a thing that we stuck in the uh, paper, was it, the Independent on Sunday, was called a MacGuffin. Just like a big thing in the middle to distract from the fact we hadn't really got any stories. Uh, let's go back to the House of Commons. <laughs> Those were the days. Those were the days. Uh, let's go back to the House of Commons. Question five from Keir Starmer. That's cheering for Rishi Sunak, of course. OK, that's... That's enough. That's Deputy Speaker Eleanor Lang. Lindsay Hall's got Madam COVID. Deputy Speaker, I would say that this treaty's got more holes in than the Swiss cheese, but I don't want to wind up the Prime Minister by talking about a European country again. Madam Deputy oh Speaker, oh you have to give credit Sorry, to the Rwandan government. For that. They saw this Prime Minister coming a mile off. You can only imagine their delight, their sheer disbelief when having already banked £140 million of British taxpayer money without housing a single asylum seeker, the Prime Minister appears again with another offer they can't refuse. A gimmick that will send taxpayers' money to Rwanda, refugees from Rwanda to Britain, and won't stop the boats. It was mentioned of Margaret Thatcher earlier. How... Madam Deputy Speaker... Can you stop that article about it at the weekend? About her, about Margaret Thatcher at the weekend. There's understandable excitement about the name, but the House must listen to the Leader of the Opposition, Sir Keir Starmer. I'll go from up yours to laws to take our money, Kigami. Oh dear. I think we need a groan nominator. Forget the bell. Well, Madam Deputy Speaker, I, 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 when, it comes, when it comes to this European thing and Margaret Thatcher, this is, this is the week that the Shadow Foreign Secretary, I think, didn't rule out rejoining the European Union. He can role-play Margaret Thatcher all he wants, but when it comes to Europe, his answer's the same. Yes, yes, yes! That's a better joke. It's a better joke, That's I'm a better afraid. joke. I mean, you know, the initial Starmer sort of joke was quite good. Um, and the Mrs Merton was passable, if you understood it. Um, but yes, more, I mean, if you're talking about more holes than the Swiss chip, you, you need to think of a different analogy yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a bit more, you know, got a bit more pep to it. And that was a decent response from Sunak. My God, we've really... I mean, take our money, Kagami. I mean, I'm, I hate to say it, I'll be sending messages after this to the... Uh, the gag writers for the Labour Party, they sort of petered out a bit early today. That's pretty dire, isn't it? Lara, the big question of the day, uh, John Michael White says, does Lara know who Debbie McGee is? No. Oh. I did strictly. wonder when you put it like that whether we would... Do you know who Paul Daniels is? No. Right. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who Rishi Sinek and Keir Starmer are? <laughs> no, that's just cool. It rings a bell. Um, uh, he's, what's, I can't work out what's gone wrong. Keir Starmer was in having this, a good outing. Yeah. He was. I mean, it's, it, like, it's, it's actually like he got one group of people to write the first three questions. That it, it's a really, it is a really interesting testament to the power of jokes in Prime Minister questions because when you get them wrong, the energy just completely saps out of your case. Like this should be, it felt like a real slam dunk session for Starmer. Yeah. It's an issue that last week he had a good showing on. It's Rwanda. It's in the middle of a massive political crisis among Sunak's backbenches and his authority on this issue. Uh, and yet, 
Starmer bottles these jokes, and you could see Rishi Sunak there visibly more relaxed, and Lammy shouting absolute Growing rubbish to five foot three. Down. <laughs> <laughs> but the first swelling. one shows you don't actually need a gag. You know, the opening thing, Starmer right. sort of was taking. You know, how many Home Secretaries has he sent? How many other people has he sent? It's not really a sort of joke with a punchline. But also, it's, it's just very, mockery. It's a Keir Starmer gag. It's a barrister's that's, gag. That's what you need. Is it's sort of you just yeah. need to gently mock and yeah, make the yeah. other guy look ridiculous. And most prime ministers can cope with attacks they don't like being mocked and Starmer was doing quite well at that at the start if I might just do a little shout out though isn't Eleanor Lang doing mm. well with a sort of understated mild disapproval and a little bit of knowing humour rather than sort of standing up and telling everybody that they've been naughty schoolboys all over again um, yeah. And I think we would all agree that Lindsay Hoyle is less insufferable than John Burko was, but um, there's certainly an element of Hoyle wanting to hear his voice every week these days, and I think Eleanor Lang is a breath of fresh air. Uh, just, uh, if you are watching along on the YouTube channel, Stephen says, Penny Morden has looked and continues to look utterly miserable throughout all of this. Perhaps it gives a window into how top Tories really feel. Uh, so there we are. But let's go back uh, to the House of Commons again. How miserable does Penny Morden look? It's yeah, but we think, is this the last question from Keir Starmer? I mean, nearly as miserable so. as Angela Rayner and Rachel Reeves looked during the Margaret Thatcher references. Yeah, we they go. were not happy. Madam Dempsey, for, forget the private jet. He's, he's obviously on a private planet of his own. <laughs> oh, dear. That's but as Daily Mail readers learned this week that the Prime Minister has begun to feel sorry for himself. He's even been heard comparing his plight to his beloved Southampton Football Club. I do think that's a bit harsh because Saints have been on an 11-game unbeaten run, while, as the song has it, the Prime Minister gets battered everywhere he goes. <laughs> but if you want the perfect example of how badly the Tories have broken the asylum system, last week the Home Office admitted that 17,000 people in the asylum system. Order! Order! <laughs> oh, again. Sir Keir Starmer. Thank you. If you want the perfect example of how badly they've broken the asylum system, Madam Deputy Speaker, last week the Home Office admitted that 17,000 people in the asylum system have disappeared. Their exact words, it's hard to believe this, we don't think we know where all these people are. Now, you might lose your car keys, you might lose your headphones, you might lose your marbles. How do you lose 17,000 people? Well, Madam Deputy Speaker, I, I mean, on, on the topic of football teams, he, lost, did, he used to describe interest, this Rwanda policy as immoral, and yet his football team has a Visit Rwanda badge on the side of them. It's Paul's Arsenal, of course. In the week when he made his big economy speech, we're still waiting to hear how he's going to borrow £28 billion and still cut taxes and reduce debt. It's the same old thing. The sums don't add up. But while they're struggling with their calculator, we're getting on and delivering a new treaty with Rwanda, the toughest measures to cut legal migration, our schools marching up the tables and tax cuts for millions, Madam Deputy Speaker. So whether it's controlling our borders or lowering our taxes, just like the Saints, the Conservatives are marching on. Wow. Wow. So much football. 
Well, for those of you use a footballing analogy, yes. it was a game of two halves. That. It was. It was. And the, the <laughs> getting battered everywhere. <laughs> getting battered everywhere is apparently a song sung about Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah. Which, of course, Starmer is an Arsenal fan, so that's him being rude about his uh, his club's major rival, nothing to do with Southampton. Um, but really, I mean, we've sort of descended into... This is the, the second half of it. The first half of it was rather good. I quite it enjoyed was. it. The second half of it was a bit like a sort of really bad sitcom tries to write what happens in Prime Minister's Questions. <laughs> And yep. it was crap, wasn't it? Forget his <laughs> private jet, he's on a private planet. So bad. I, I, I literally cannot understand how that went so badly wrong for Keir Starmer. You are literally in a situation... Like, there are so many different things off the top of my head that you could ask. You're, you literally have benches in front of you that are bitterly divided on this question. You don't have an announcement yet on the emergency legislation. You can pry him about exactly what the contours of his agreement might be, etc. And in doing so, probably annoy some people on his back benches and highlight divisions in the Conservative Party. But you're choosing to make jokes that I'm sure when he read them, he must have known weren't going to be hugely amusing to people. And they're not Keir Starmer jokes, are they? You need to write jokes that yeah, fit yeah, the yeah, personality yeah. of the person who's saying them. Occasionally, if you've got an absolute humdinger of a one-liner, you can get them to say it. But it has to sort of be something that sounds natural coming. I mean, maybe Starmer sits around making naff football gags the whole time in his private office. But, I mean, please... A member of the Shipman family has reminded me that my father once went on stage with Paul Daniels as well. There we are. At the Theatre Royal in Lincoln. Did he saw him in half? Uh, no, he didn't, no. But he, did t- he was able to see how he was doing the trick. <laughs> Mike says, Who in the hell writes the Keir Starmer's gags? They were particularly lame after promising to start real toe curlers. Pete says, Labour of the Tories on the run. Why does Starmer think resorted to a crack comedy routine as the route to take? It's not stars in your eyes when so many of us have serious problems are facing this country. Stars in your eyes, Lara? Just about. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one thing we all know is that that's not a comedy show. That's uh, doing songs. Like, doing doing a, a songs. <laughs> Today, so, Matthew, I will be useless at Prime Minister's yeah. questions. Well, yeah. just to round off this section, John says, is the reason the first half was so good is that Tim wasn't there? I was here by the end. Well, I was present for the first question and I was able to comment. We've got such a big team today. Tim Shipman's here, Chief Political Commentator of the Sunday Times. Lara Spirit's here, Red Box Editor. Uh, We've got producer Lewis keeping an eye on the best of the rest. We've got Callum MacDonald watching uh, Boris Johnson at uh, the COVID inquiry. Uh, Lara... Now that you're so important, you've delegated this role to producer Lewis. I did not delegate this uh, role. Uh, who are we going to for Best of the Best? Um, well, I'm really pleased to say that um, Lewis has decided we're going to Stephen Flynn first for yeah, yeah, Best yeah, of the Rest. Yeah, 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 yeah. In fact, he's um, the full extent, apparently, of the Best of the Rest. Um, and it is indeed on the SNP's position on migration, uh, which is... Uh, very genuinely different, I would say. Um, you would we're told it gets quite rowdy, so let's find out. Okay. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. Is the Prime Minister worried that he is projected to be the first Conservative Party leader to lose a general election to a fellow Thatcherite? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad joke. It'll land with his SNP supporters. We really must hear the Prime Minister, and we've got a lot of questions to get through. It's, it's not the Prime Minister's opponents who are giving him trouble. Prime Minister! Ma- 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 Madam Deputy Speaker, I say to the Honourable Gentleman, Margaret Thatcher's view was 
cut inflation, then cut taxes, and then win an election, and that's very much my plan. What's my answer? Of course, Madam Deputy Speaker, it's not just in relation to Margaret Thatcher where the Tory and Labour leader appear to agree. The same is true of the government's latest migration policies. Now, for those of us on these benches, we aren't afraid to say that we believe migration is a good thing. It enriches enriches our communities, it enriches our economy, it enriches our universities, our schools, our health service and, of course, our care sector. So in that regard, can I ask the Prime Minister, why does he think it is acceptable to ask people to come to these shores to care for our family members whilst we show complete disregard for theirs? What has become of this place? Madam Speaker, it's completely wrong. As we've already said, we have a proud track record of welcoming those who are most vulnerable around the world. Over half a million over the past few years from Syria, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Hong Kong and elsewhere. And that's what this country will always do. But at the same time, when it comes to economic migration and other forms, it's absolutely right that we take strong action to curb the levels that we have seen because they are simply far too high and place unsustainable pressure on our public services. And, Madam Speaker, I make no apology for saying that or indeed saying that it is important that those who come here contribute to our public services. Now, there's an interesting question here, Tim. This this question about uh, spouses and how much they earn is bubbling up. It feels to me like it has the potential to become a huge row, all to not go anywhere. I mean, it was sort of at the stage of the the evolution of a row where, where either could be, could be true. Well, it will t- depend a little bit what the Labour Party decide to do about it, because Stephen Flynn, you know, in classic SNP fashion, trying to say they're both as bad as each other. Vote for us. Don't vote Labour or Tory um, because they know for the first time in a long time that they're kind of under pressure from both uh, parties north of the border at the next general election. Um, And then, you know, trying to paint Labour as the same on on migration. I think people would say instinctively Labour aren't uh, the same. But, uh, you know, how much can Starmer differentiate himself from the Tories on this and keep making the arguments he's been making? Um, It's the sort of thing that can blow up and you can see a a Labour backbench rebellion on it. uh, potentially brewing, um, but um, you know, if Starmer doesn't sort of take a defiantly different line, then you know, maybe it, maybe it doesn't erupt. But just a reminder, Laura, of Stephen Flynn's ability to actually to use a single question to skewer both of his political opponents. Yeah, he likes it, and also um, he often has uh, the merits of brevity. I think he's quite good at doing the kind of shorter questions, which put people on the spot. So he'll be quite happy with those, I think. But um, it is interesting on the Labour position of Ed Cooper, um, the Shadow Home Secretary, obviously on the radio yesterday and when she was asked repeatedly about these different uh, proposals she merely often said you know that the migration advisory committee needed to look at all of these in detail so I think we are um, notably waiting for Labour to outline exactly what they think on these different points and at that point I think it'll be interesting to see uh, which MPs become upset about their response if they do choose to back them. And then uh, Rishi Sunak can decide whether or not Labour has a plan or doesn't have a plan. And, uh, which and will, then who has the bigger one? Who has the bigger plan? Lovely stuff. Uh, but there we are. That brings us to the end of PMQ's Unpacked. Thank you Lower Spirits. Thank you for, for stepping me. in to the breach. The Eleanor Lang of Times Radio <laughs> it turns out. Uh, Tim Pithier Lo- and <laughs> more appropriate <laughs> than the usual fat old bloke. <laughs> 
Tim Shipman, lovely to see you. Uh, Tim Shipman, of course, will be the Sunday Times at the weekend. Uh, Lara's bit will be in your inbox at 3, 3 o'clock with uh, PMQ's Unpacked. Uh, available to Time subscribers. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to head over to How to Win an Election. It's an absolute cracker this week if you haven't already listened to it. Daniel Finkstein, Peter Madison and Polly McKenzie on what to do about former leaders, what should Richie Sunak do about Boris Johnson, why is Keir Starmer going on about Margaret Thatcher and Polly McKenzie gets very cross and shouts the words it's just arrogance over and over again which is very entertaining head over to How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this but for now for me Matt Johnny it's goodbye Even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.